Hello, and welcome to a special episode of Cap Talk. Earlier this month, the computer-aided biology community hosted a roundtable discussion on COVID-19. In this Cap Talk special, we take a look at what our panelists have to say about computer-aided biology in the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, my name is Tess, and I recently graduated from my PhD in uh, bioinformatics and epigenetics at the Netherlands Cancer, to Cancer Institute in, uh, in Amsterdam. Our first speaker is Tess Kortout from The Hive, an IT services company providing open source data solutions for biomedicine and healthcare. Uh, the nice thing I must say, so uh, in preparation for this, I had a look as well as all the, at all the open science initiatives. And I must say that almost all publishers are pushing for uh, publishing, sharing your data open source and sharing it with, for example, uh, as soon as possible using a preprint server to, um, to actually share your results whenever you can, like, um, yeah, the sooner the better. But this is this this is a trade-off, right? Because uh, because it's so it needs to be so quick. Results can actually be misinterpreted. Also for hospitals, the the incentive to share uh, their obligation for sharing the results so fast can actually reduce the incentive for for testing. And also, of course, uh, the the pressure to share data so quickly uh, increases the chance for false uh, numbers. The trouble with data often is safety and privacy concerns, especially during a crisis such as the COVID-19 pandemic. Obviously, uh, especially when we're talking about safety, these doctors, they are uh, often, they need to take care of the GDPR regulations. And this is not always easy. And in our case, uh, in this COVID-19, especially the ICU doctors, they don't even have time to, to accurately uh, take the time and and uh, fill in their their data. Uh, there's lots and lots of is- uh, data, but also uh, issues, I must say. And the nice thing is is that there's actually quite some initiatives that are working around this, and this is something that that uh, the Hive is also actively involved in. There are two initiatives that the Hive is involved in, though many can be found on the European Commission website. The first is called GoFair. These are the principles that data should be findable. So uh, mainly uh, that, for example, your data has a unique identifier and also that this identifier is actually globally uh, unique and persistent. So think about the DOI for publications that you can really, uh, even if you take it outside of the data source, it's always resolvable. Um, The data should, uh, so the second point is accessible. Uh, So and I really like to highlight here because a mistake that's often made is that uh, people think that fair data should is always open and available for everyone, but that's not not true. It's uh, the idea is that fair data has always has associated rich metadata, and this metadata should always be accessible and then describe who can actually access this data. Uh, so it's different from uh, data that is open. Um, and the I is for interoperable. So uh, this is a very important one. So the data can actually relate to each other. Uh, and you can actually not have one data set, but you can link many different data sets to each other and uh, allow uh, very cool things and uh, make uh, make it easier for machine learning and, and building knowledge graphs. And the last one is uh, that it makes data reusable. Uh, and that's something that I'm also really fascinated as a researcher having generated so many data sets and analyzed so many data sets, it's uh, 
I really advocate for making these data sets reusable as well, because the question that you have now might be different in one year. And it's really nice if you apply these fair principles, you can actually uh, reuse data as well. So, um, yeah, as I said, there's this Go Fair initiatives, uh, initi uh, global organization that started uh, the Vodan um, uh, implementation network. And this is actually a group of researchers across the entire uh, world that uh, started um, to use machine learning and make um, uh, the verification of uh, data sets. Uh, so they are an initiative of many different groups all over the world that aims to make uh, data fair. And what they started with is actually the case report of the WHO. So as I said, doctors are way too busy to uh, start um, and, and fill in all this information uh, and uh, every case of each COVID-19 patient. So um, they made a, a system um, that makes it easier for doctors to fill in this information uh, about COVID-19 patients and actually make it immediately machine readable so that it's not only uh, accessible for humans, but actually a machine immediately also knows about uh, the patient. Um, yeah, so that is uh, the Go Fair part. So this is a really cool initiative uh, that allows these WHO reports to actually connect to each other. And uh, if data is accessible by machines as well and interpretable by machines, it really allows for quicker uh, machine learning algorithms to understand uh, the spread of the disease. And the second uh, initiative is um, something that we have actually uh, actively participated in. It's the, called the Study-a-thon by the Odyssey community. So um, there's uh, this global community uh, that is, aims to map uh, observational data to a common data model called OMO. Um, and so this is about real world, so their aim is to create a real world evidence from observational data. So really observational data is mostly from electronic health records um, and that are then all mapped to a common data model that uses a common representation of data. So they use common vocabularies and terms and schemes, uh, codes for specific conditions such as COVID-19. And they organized uh, uh, a three-day e virtual event with over 300 collaborators from 30 different countries and uh, what is very cool is that these collaborators actually had 37 different data sets from all over the world, all mapped to the same data standard. And as you can imagine, this allows very quick analysis of data all over the world and it's mapped anonymized to a data model. So it never has to leave the hospital actually. It stays within the firewalls, but what happens is that the participants of these study-a-thons generated a script, an analysis that they wanted to know, which is actually sent to the data, and then only the results are sent back. So this way you can do really a federated analysis across the entire world without sharing data, sending each other data, which especially in this case is, I think, very uh, important. So the Hive really participated um, in this, and, and we also joined this virtual event. Uh, and the questions that were asked are basically three main, so there were 12 different questions ranging from characterization, so really what characterizes a COVID-19 patient. Uh, so there were six, uh, they already had 6,000 
um, um, the data set or 6,000 participant uh, uh, COVID-19 patients to analyze and they compared it to, to flu, to influenza. Uh, and uh, another question was that they predicted uh, what patients with flu-like symptoms will actually be admitted to the hospital. And finally, they wanted to estimate the effects of different drugs that are of interest, such as hydroxychloroquine. And that is one that we, in this study, we actually participated. Um, yeah, and the results are still coming in, actually. And they've already published two preprints of this uh, study. And I just wanted like to mention this because it really highlights the, the power of a community and of 300 scientists working together. And so if we all share data and use the fair data principles, uh, these things can really happen, which is important in uh, times like these, I think. One of the major barriers to open source data is the amount of time required by the researchers and doctors to annotate the data to the required standard. Could computer-aided biology provide a solution? Uh, it's very interesting if I talk to my previous colleagues or these PhD students, postdocs, they all are very excited about this, but everyone says, I, I don't have time to, it takes so, you do so many experiments and you run so many different analyses and it just takes quite some time to annotate everything uh, manually. It just, they don't have time for it, which makes sense. And this is why I love the computer aided biology community, because I think that's, that's the future. Because if you can get your, um, your lab equipment to immediately uh, instead of uh, giving the results, also giving the fair metadata in a computer-readable format, this is uh, then it doesn't take a lot of time for the researcher. They might have to click a checkbox or something from a drop-down menu. So I think um, this is the, the way to go. Computer-aided biology in conjunction with open-source data could revolutionize the way researchers and clinicians acquire, share, and interrogate data leading to better patient outcomes and more robust results. Uh, so I'm Alexander Super. I'm a scientist at UCB. Our next panelist is Alexander Super, a cell bioprocessing specialist with multinational pharma company UCB. He tells us about the growing role of automation in industry. Uh, so if you think about cell culture, actually, you know, automation in a way, it's a very old story because if you think about, you know, you're growing your cells and basically the simplest way to do it is to dump it in some kind of dish, put some nutrients, put the right condition, and obviously your cell will multiply. But now if you want to take this process of, you know, expanding your cells to the quality, you know, required to actually produce a pharmaceutical that you will actually give to people to try to help them, you understand that you need much more control there. And that's why, you know, industry automation has been used since the inception of, you know, of modern cell culture to, to allow the industrialization of, of, of this process. So it's actually nothing, I would not say it's really a revolution. It, it has been, you know, with us all along. And, and it's really important. It brings a lot of uh, benefit. And I think many of them are well known. So if you think that if you operate manually your cell culture, we see there's a lot of risk for your, for your process itself. You know, you can contaminate yourself. That's not what you want. There's as well risk for the people that are doing that. You know, thinking now maybe in this context, you know, researcher working, for example, on studying viruses directly. You, you don't want people to be in contact with whatever grows in your, in your dishes. And that's where, you know, having automated closed system uh, provide an enormous benefit, I think. Uh, another aspect is that, you know, with human operators, 
you have always viability. It's normal. Everybody does that thing in, in a different way. Uh, and by having your process automated, you are able to control the viability. I don't want to say eliminate because you will always get viability, but you're able to control it and to factor it to understand you know, how actually your process is impacted by what you're trying. And I think that the, the last the last thing very important that about automation is it's kind of empower the people, I would like to say, because for people that have been working in cell culture, we, we know it can be very tedious, it's very long hours. Cells do not go on weekend, they do not go on holiday, they don't even go to sleep. So depending <laughs> what you want to do, <laughs> there needs to be someone in the lab, there needs to be someone changing medium, there needs to be someone passaging, there needs to be someone counting. And automation has brought us many solutions to this very tedious unit operation. And that means that actually, you know, scientists, researchers have actually time to do science rather than dilution, cell countings, and, and this kind of thing. So I think these are really the, the, the benefit of automation. And it's very widely used now, now in industry. I mean, it's, it's standard. So you have automation, you know, on your large scale system. And now maybe the newest trend is as well combining automation with miniaturization. And it's to basically increase the, the throughput. So doing more experiments, gathering more data uh, with the same cost, with the same budget, which is very important, which allow you to move faster. Because automation is now so prevalent, the industry is facing a new bottleneck in data. And as the technology changes too, is that data as robust as before? If, it's nice to get a lot of data, but if you can't make sense of it, it it's kind of, uh, of a waste. So we're moving as well towards that. And as well, the thing is, if you're miniaturizing, you're reducing the volume, can you actually extract any data out of it? You know, your analytical method are the fit for purpose for the, for the scale you're looking at. So there's a lot of, you know, still challenges. And I think that's what makes the field exciting as well to, to mesh everything, uh, together. And now, if we think more about the, the context of the of the current crisis, I think you know all these new tools and these new ways of working that are already in place and that are still being developed can help us. You know, uh, for I would say in, in three different areas. First, you know, we we are subject now to disruption, and we need to be able to cope with this disruption. And that means, for example, in the case of the biopharmaceutical company, that means two things. First, you know, people don't stop to get sick of other diseases because the COVID-19 is there. So people still need access to essential medicine for other conditions than COVID-19. Uh, and company need to be able to uh, supply this medicine and need to be able to continue business as usual. But still, they need to be able to implement, you know, measures just confinement, social uh, distanciation. And basically, thanks to automation, we can reduce the amount of people present on site, you know, in plants while still maintaining the operation. I think, I think this is really extraordinary that we can, we can do that. I think maybe, you know, a few years, decades, 20 years ago, it would not have been the same. Uh, and this automation allows us to do that. If you look now at the other aspect, digitalization, you know, we see that obviously we have still people working on site, but we have a lot of people working from home. And the fact that now we have software, we have collaborative tools like Zoom, but many others that we can use uh, to make the transition seamless between the lab uh, and the office or the home office. And I think this is really critical. I think I, I myself can be at home and be monitoring what's an experiment that is taking place in the lab almost in real time. I, I can 
take data that have been generated on the day and start to analyze it. I can then jump on the meeting, I can exchange files with uh, my colleagues. And I think this is really amazing and this is really helping us to cope actually with the description. The fact that you can you know, transition seamlessly between the wet lab, between the office, between the home office. Uh, I think this is essential to help us to continue the, the business as usual. I've got, I've got a question for you, Alexander, um, and it's also, I can see some questions coming in now from, uh, from our attendees, and I want to tie my question to that as well. So obviously you work for a big pharma company, UCB, um, and my question was really around, um, if you think about people that want to start with automation, um, when is the right time to start? And, and is it tied to, let's say, being a small biotech company or a big biotech company or an academic institution? Once, when is it the right time to, uh, to, to start adapting uh, or embracing automation? I think the right time was yesterday. I mean, there's no, you, you, you cannot, I mean, it's not something specific to automation. It's if you want to bring a change in the way you're walking, the right time is the earliest possible because that's the least disruptive time. You, you want to basically, you know, build quality into the way you're doing things. You want to build automation. You know, it needs to be, part of your ways of working. Mm. Uh, I think I mean, that's my opinion, that trying to develop things in a certain way, knowing that in six months you're going to change totally the way because you want to jump on the next new thing, uh, it can be very challenging. So I think that the best way is to do it as, as soon as possible. Good. Yeah, and this ties in with a question that's coming in from an anonymous attendee. Um, does automation come with increased energy costs in the lab, increased use of resources, like, for example, pipette tips, uh, compared to manual approaches? Obviously, there's a big investment when it comes to automation. Yeah, there, there's a big investment. Uh, I would say that, you know, we use anyway a lot of pipette tips. Uh, I think uh, in that regard, you know, the, the, the research is probably a very big polluter. Uh, in terms of, you know, single-use plastics and everything. And I've, I've seen, for example, in the UK, I think UCL now is launching an initiative to, to cut down all single-use plastic by 2024, which I think personally is amazing. I'm not sure exactly how they're going to do it, but I think it's definitely the right message to to, uh, to send. So current process in industry uh, are very uh, already wasteful, I would say, in terms of plastics. And I'm not sure here automation. I mean, if you couple automation with miniaturization, so yes, here definitely you, you reduce the water usage, you know, uh, you reduce plastic usage. So here there's definitely a big gain. So it's not automation on in itself, it's automation uh, associated with the reduction of the scale. Yeah. How can scientists automate their assays quickly and effectively when they're under pressure to do a lot of research for, let's say, for example, COVID-19 in a short time frame? What is the cost yeah. ratio for automation? Uh, I mean, it's always the same trade-off. You know, that's always the same kind of. It's it's, it's an old story. Is you're so busy that you don't have time to learn new thing that would make your your life easier. Uh, and I think that's an old. You can call that a fallacy, basically, because obviously the the, the good calculation is probably to spend a bit more time investing on things that down the line will have a massive return on investment. So so I think um, the the thing is on a personal level you need. Sometimes to accept that, you know, to take time to do the things better, sometimes it's going to have uh, a return on investment for you better than continuing the same old ways. If you want to basically convince people, the, 
need to think about you know how you can gain traction and convince them that that this is the right way and Typically, you need to start small, find something like a low-hanging fruit uh, in your lab, uh, in your company, uh, an easy problem to solve from the point of view of automation or digitalization, but mm -hmm. that will have uh, a rather big impact. Basically, something that you know is not going to take you a lot of resource to do, to demonstrate, but it's going to be very convincing. Automation is allowing researchers to continue their work safely and effectively, especially in testing and understanding the novel coronavirus. Data analysis tools are also playing a major role in identifying drugs and drug targets against SARS-CoV-2. Uh, so my name is David Delanovi. I lead the Cell Phenotyping Group, which is a research group at King's College London. Next, we hear from Dr. Davide Denovi from King's College London, who is helping OpenCell in their efforts to automate COVID-19 testing. I think in terms of like how we handled the, the crisis in, in my group, basically we, so, uh, I mean, on a personal level, I, I think it's a very important message that we really try to put on our oxygen mask before we put it to others. So I, I've really been trying to send a message that um, you want people to be functional and operational, but also like uh, kind of uh, taking exercise and kind of doing things that they want and reorganize their day if it needs be and, and taking care of their, their main problems. So, so work in a sense has been kind of a sanity check for all of us and, and, and this was a very good feeling. I think the, the lesson is we have made progress in sort of building a workflow that allow us to, uh, to share data and to analyze data. So we've taken time to submit papers, etc. We are still a bit away from my dream of having like a, a continuous workflow where the raw data gets processed and almost every analysis become an, ex an experiment in its own right. And you can sort of uh, uh, track this along the lines of uh, what Tess was saying in, in terms of FAIR, but like some sort of interoperability already at the level of the single group that I think is very important. Um, there is this tendency of, um, of not uh, uh, paying attention to um, these things and, and typically academia tend to analyze things at the end of a big period of uh, data production so i think uh, the current uh, system is like uh, funding production and then communication and communication becomes like the deliverable hmm. um, i think there's a lot to think about this model because um, especially when you when you sort of uh, i mean along the lines of the bias of preprint versus the bias of the nature cell and sciences I think this affects deeply what we do and why we do it. Um, but without, without going too philosophical again on, on, on those uh, topics, I would like just to tell you a little bit concretely what we could uh, think of uh, contributing to. And uh, we had uh, really the privilege to collaborate since March with uh, uh, an incubator in Shepherd's Bush in London that have um, basically used a shipping container in a completely novel mode. So re-engineering them to be basic uh, testing laboratories. And so we managed to install uh, automation in this so OpenTron's uh, laboratory liquid handling. Uh, OpenTron's is a bit like a Lego block, like an Arduino of, of automation. And we can do uh, RNA extraction with the magnetic beads and then RT-PCR and also the, the group at OpenCell have managed to put a QR code on the samples, so to log in and out throughout. There is one single uh, operator, so there's no distance problem, and there are up to 2,400 uh, tests at the moment. And uh, this is the sort of thing that 
could come to a business or could come to a local community and test uh, much more effectively and eventually could also be used uh, to follow outbreaks in remote regions where uh, nobody really puts this in focus, but you, you may have the best central facilities as possible, but you will always need a couple of days to sort of acquire the sample, log them in, inactivate, send them, re-log them in and process. So even from the point of view of the, of the actual steps involved, this is a game-changing structure. And, and so I, I think this community is particularly switched on to these topics. Uh, people at OpenCell have been incredible in, in pushing this forward. We had like a nice bottom-up uh, kind of formation of the concept and now I've been uh, collaborating with Kings in, uh, in kind of uh, looking into transferring already accredited workflows inside this to make it completely functional. And hopefully we can soon going to be able to test students and staff uh, and offer this as a solution for everyone. Can you tell us a bit more about what other organizations or people are joining this initiative and uh, what makes it such a such a good collaborative? Well, so I think uh, along the lines of what we were saying before, uh, the brilliant things that OpenCell decided from the very beginning to um, build an emerging blueprint that is uh, entirely open source. So the idea is to be able to recreate this in different places. And uh, um, I think they, they have a strong position because if I wanted to build in my garden a shipping container kind of engineered as a category two lab, I would probably still need to talk to them in the first place. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't been trading containers in my life. So, so I think they, they have enough of a solid position having been doing this for over three years in, um, in terms of understanding what do you need and how you can change and what materials and et cetera. To be, to be able to sort of present it as an open source initiative. Uh, King's has been now receptive to, to this idea and we had uh, uh, several discussions with labs that are already accredited. In particular, I need to mention, there is a colleague of mine, Rocio Martinez Nunes, who's been championing this from uh, um, the automation side in King's and uh, they have already been developing an accredited solution that is in a, in a facility, in a lab. And so she's kind of bridging this uh, uh, from, from, uh, from that angle. So, uh, I mean, th there's a lot of help needed, but now we are on a track to sort of build the first modular lab effectively. And I think this is the sort of thing that you have to do, very, you have to be very careful doing it. Uh, but once you've kind of done it right in the first place, uh, it will be picked up. Mobile modular labs with automated testing capability could change the way we face outbreaks, with rural or infrastructure poor regions standing to gain the most benefit. To hear the full discussion on these topics from these panelists and insight from Gallagher Insurance's life science team, you can find the roundtable discussion on our YouTube channel. Just search for the computer-aided biology community. Fane and I would like to give a special thanks to the Science Entrepreneur Club for helping make this happen. You can check them out on science-entrepreneur.com. You can find us at computeraidedbiology.com and join the community at revolutionaries at computeraidedbiology.com.